Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Haskin, here with the continuation of my review of the essential John Carpenter, uh, fantastic composer and filmmaker. When I think about like a lot of the films that we're talking about from the late 70s through the, the early 80s, there's like so many that he did in such a short time. It's pretty fascinating. And we left off with track five, which was the Pork Chop Express. And while it may not seem like only getting through five tracks was a lot, we also had some alternate mixes that we had to go through. We do not have any more of those going forward. It is just individual songs for individual films. And our next film on the chopping block is The Fog, the 1980 classic starring Adrian Barbeau. Fantastic movie. I, you know, the, one of the things that I love about certain films, the, the first Rambo movie would be a, a perfect example of this, First Blood. Uh, I love that, that mountain, rainy atmosphere. You know, a little bit of fog coming in. And I lived in Colorado for a while. I know what those days feel like. I know what it feels like to be up in the mountains during those days. And there's just something about that atmosphere that really makes me want to watch that movie, especially around, you know, this time of year in the autumn uh, heading towards winter. Same with the series Dead Like Me. A lot of that was filmed during that time or gives you the feel of that time around Halloween, around autumn. And uh, definitely another favorite. And of course, you know, uh, I, how do you not love Ellen Muse? She's just amazing. Makes an incredible, incredibly roasted, delicious roasted coffee bean. Um, but we'll save that for another time. For now, we're going to get into this song. Here is the main theme from The Fog. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I do not like the intro to this at all. Um, it's too cheesy to me. It reminds me of something that I would expect from maybe a film like Creepshow, which was supposed to be somewhat campy. Uh, however, the rest of the piece I really loved. I love that percussion. Um, he uses a similar bit in uh, in Halloween, you know, just that that uh, that he's got going. And uh, here he's panning it back and forth between the left and right speaker. But there's just there's some really cool effects that he's got on there. And I really like the way that drives. I also just love that, you know, gentle uh, electronic just just pinging that he's got going through the song. It's kind of reminiscent of Steven by Alice Cooper from Welcome to My Nightmare, that um, electronic piano part. But I really like it. I, I think it's got a good mood to it. I think it really fits the film very well. Uh, I just hate that intro. So maybe, I and I haven't seen the film in a long time. I think I've only seen it once, maybe twice, the original one. I saw the remake of it and I thought it was pretty good. I don't know if John Carpenter was involved in it, but I remember I thought, you know, they're not going to top the first one. I don't think they did, but I think they they created something very good. Um, but yeah, it's a cool piece. But basically, like what you're hearing after that intro, 
that's the whole song. I mean, it just kind of keeps flowing through that part over and over again. I don't know how long the opening credits were for the movie. Um, a lot of times they'll just, you know, they'll write a, an extra long piece and then they'll just fade it as the credits come out. Uh, unless there's certain, you know, it needs to cut for a certain reason. And sometimes they'll just cut it or, and, and just write a quick ending. Um because it's really hard to time it unless you're writing it after the opening credits are done, which they're probably kind of happening around the same time. Uh, a lot of times, actually, like opening themes and main themes are written ahead of time to get director approval before the rest of the score is done. Um, composers will, you know, if they're not working on a project while the next one's being shot or edited, sometimes they'll, you know, like they'll read the script and they'll go, oh, let me play with some themes and get them sent over for approval. And then they have to be tweaked to maybe match the timing of the film or hit certain visual cues. Um, you know, all kinds of things happen. But for a composer, it's a real luxury to be able to write ahead of time. Most of the time you're finishing up another project and and then, you know, when that's done, the other one's got picture lock and it's time to start, um, you know, doing the spotting session and, and writing the theme. So if you have time ahead of time, it's luxury. However, if you're the director and the composer, it's not like you have to get approval. You're just going to tell yourself yes. So uh, a little bit different of a process than it would be if you were two different people. And it, it can get adversarial. Hopefully it doesn't, but that has happened uh, more than once. Um, but the main themes are great. It's good to get those out of the ways because then you can start working on variations and you could, you could work on infinite variations if you have time before, you know, the picture's locked and you have to start working on the film. You could work on all kinds of variations and, you know, different things will work in different scenes. You won't know because you don't have anything to look at yet. So it's it's sometimes worth it to, you know, to be able to write ahead at least at least get some themes approved, if at all possible. But I think this is a cool piece. I just think it gets, you know, very repetitive after a while. I think if I was watching it with the credits, it might be a little bit more interesting because now I've got two components to, for my brain to work. Uh, so I think that it works as a standalone piece for like two minutes. And after that, it really starts to lose my interest because there's really nothing new going on with it. Um, nothing special anyway. Uh, but it is a cool piece. Now, our, our next two pieces come from a film that came out in 1976, so one of his earlier ones. This one is Assault on Precinct 13. I, I remember when I saw this film, it was an edited-for-TV version of it. And what I liked most about it was the actual music. It was, it was one of those early things where I was like, wow, that music is pretty cool. Um, it wasn't, I, I can't say that it was a heavy influence on me wanting to become a film composer because that was really um, it by Richard Bellis and uh, The Island, uh, the soundtrack by Steve Jablonski. But I, I have to say this might have been one of those things, kind of like the theme in Star Wars, uh, the episode, uh, what, for A New Hope when uh, Darth Vader and Ben Kenobi are fighting on the Death Star. The music at the end of that sequence really, really drew me in. And much like music from Jesus Christ Superstar, where I was like, wow, this music is so powerful. It really makes me feel something. And I started to gravitate towards it. I would say it was an early influence. I think that the the synth bass on this is what really just got me because with the, the TV that we had at the time, I really couldn't hear the percussion. It wasn't until I bought this album that I really got the full depth of what this song sounded like. So our first of the two tracks is the main title from Assault on Precinct 13 from 1976.
One thing that you'll notice as a, a, a sort of standard method of composing, at least for the opening and sometimes the closing themes of films, um, a lot of times they're the same pieces, but uh, is he, he really likes to just repeat and, and do these long drawn out passages where um, it, it just kind of, you know, it just sets on your brain a little bit. And I, as I've been going back and, and restructuring some of my older songs, I realized that I did a lot of that myself. I would just like, I really like this part. I really like playing it. It's fun. So I'm just going to keep doing it and I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to keep doing it because if I enjoy playing it, people must enjoy listening to it. And it was completely the wrong methodology, but I had no visual to sync it up to. So again, we're listening to these standalone. And if you were watching the movie, you would be seeing end credits, you would be seeing uh, early setup scenes or something like that. I don't remember for this particular movie, but um, I had forgotten that the little girl at the beginning of the film was Kim Richards, who you might know from the movie Tough Turf. Um, I think she was one of the Desperate Housewives on one of those shows, and she was in uh, one of the Sharknado movies. Um, I, I don't know what all happened to her career because I didn't follow it, but I remember Tough Turf because she had like really big, poofy, crimped 80s hair. It was a good time. Um, and that was a that was a, like a James Spader teenage angst kind of film. Um, a pretty interesting one, actually. But um, yeah, so she's in this. It, it's, you know, it's it's a really dark film, you know, and uh, the remake of it, I think had a, just a different feel of intensity to it than the first one. But I really liked the first one. I, I think it was a, a great film, definitely one worth watching in the music, especially this theme, I think certainly enhanced it. Um, it I remember it repeats a couple times during the film at some key points where they're just like a lull in the insanity, you know, just getting ready for that next thing. So it's kind of like the, the, the synth bass that we're hearing here is almost optimistic, but with that sense of, I don't, I don't want to get my hopes up too much. Like I see possibility, but I don't want to count on it because I'll just be disappointed if it doesn't work out. That's the feeling I get from this theme. And I think that suits the film pretty well. Um, it's, it's a pretty cool movie. Um, obviously, you know, seventies, you know, late seventies, the graphics and stuff weren't quite as good as the, the newer one. Um, but it's definitely a movie worth checking out as far as I'm concerned. So we do have another piece from that film, and this one is called Julie's Theme. This almost has like a, a cop drama television show feel to it. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting because this is a film about a, an assault on a police station, but it, it definitely has that that thing. And I can't remember now. Maybe it was. I can't think of the show, but it had a similar like um, you know electric piano type opening. It was really um, you know kind of gentle like that. 
Uh, I can't think of which show it was, but it would have been like late seventies, early eighties, somewhere in there. I, I wasn't Hill Street Blues. It wasn't L.A. Law, um, which would be more of a legal type show. But it was it was one of the, one of those shows, like in that area, maybe seen elsewhere or something. I, I don't remember, but it had a, that similar feel to it. Um, it's a nice piece, though, and I know that John Carpenter is a really big fan of the electric piano. He uses it quite a bit, and it's a nice instrument, you know, especially if it's not. You know, it's it's one of those instruments that to me, if you keep playing it too long or try to do too many fancy things with it, it can kind of get annoying. But in a setting like this, I think it, it can work beautifully. And um, I've used it a few times in uh, some different pieces of mine. It's a really nice instrument. Um, but it's like, wow, there's so many sounds. Do we really need to keep using piano and electric piano for things? For the most part, I think, no, there's some things that just work so beautifully. And I, I really like this because it doesn't have a warm sound to it. It's kind of like a colder feeling electric piano. So uh, I think it, it really works well for this kind of film because it's, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of edge of your seat. There's danger at any moment. And even though the film doesn't really seem that intense from my recollection, I think the music does. Um, it, it brings about that sense of something something could go down at any moment kind of feel, which I think is pretty cool. Now, that brings us to our next piece, which is the, uh, well, it's it's from the movie Christine, which came out in 1983. Of course, that starred uh, Keith Gordon, John Stockwell, Alexandria Paul, and a bunch of other people that weren't destined to live for very long. Uh, a cool flick. I, I remember reading the book. It was one of the first Stephen King books that I read and could not wait to see the movie. I thought the movie was good, but it was definitely low budget. Like It did not live up to the expectations or the intensity of, of the book for me personally. But I, I still enjoy the movie. Like if I just watch the movie and don't think about how deep the book got, then I can really enjoy it. I think it was very well done. I'm sure it was very difficult because you're dealing with not special effects as much as like actual metal cars. I don't remember how many they had. Um, and, you know, you're talking an older car. So it's not like they were it's not like, a you know, a, a Nissan Versa or something where you can just get 50 of these for a small amount of money. I mean, they they had to work at finding the, you know, the Plymouth Fury and getting it the right color and all that sort of thing. It was it was a very, very well done movie, I have to say. Um, except there's like one chase scene. It, this always gets on my nerves. Like there's a chase scene and they always have to follow the street, right? Like th there's a car chasing them and they just stay in the road, running in the road. I'm like, why don't you like cross over through a neighborhood or hop a fence or or do something that that the car is not likely to follow you. But if you just stay on the road, he's going to run you down at some point. And of course, he runs the kid into an alley that just gets thinner and ends for some reason and just crashes him. And I'm like, I, I never understood that death. But, you know, I, I thought that was the oddest thing until this morning when I saw a video of a train and I don't know where the train was. I don't know if this was in Egypt or not, but there was a camel on the train track and for the longest time tried to outrun the train by staying on the train track, you know, a few feet in front of the train. And I'm like, all you have to, like, it's such a narrow thing. All you have to do is like jump left or right and you'll be fine instead of panicking and trying to outrun a train. It was the craziest thing. And then finally the camel did jump off to the right. And I'm like, all right, well, I feel better about that. And then I started thinking, well, there's probably people that would do that. I mean, in a panic, sure, but it seems like that sense of survival would kick in and you would try to avoid the path of danger more than stay on it and seeing if you could outrun it. It, it just, it might make for good cinema, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so the song is a very, very well-known song. This is George Thorogood's Bad to the Bone. 
I was very curious if this was like the most licensed song in all of film. And I, I wasn't able to verify that it was. It's got to be up there. One of the Beatles songs might be uh, in the top as well. But it was in over 25 movies. That's as far as I was able to narrow it down, which is far more than most songs get. Um, pretty amazing. That's that's a huge run for one song to be in, in that many movies, because usually once you're in one and the movie kind of takes off, it's like they're not going to use it for something else because the association is already with that other movie. So unless there's a specific reason for us to play it, we would go find something else. But in this case, uh, yeah, hugely popular. So here's a little bit of Bad to the Bone by George Thorogood. So you probably know the song or, or have heard it at some point. There's a good chance of that. Uh, you know, this is an interesting one because it's instrumental version and there is just constant soloing through the whole thing. And I, you know, I, I don't mind a little harmonica. It's nice when it's done tastefully, but there's only so much of that I can take. I've never really been a big fan of this song, but a lot of songs that just have that massive popular success, I, I often tend to shy away from like most things in life. If if a lot of people like it, I'm probably going to get bored with it fairly quickly. But uh, it is a good song. I mean, it certainly fit the the motif of the movie. And uh, I remember they played it while they were even just building the car on the assembly line. It, it injured somebody and I think killed somebody. So it's like right off the bat, like this car was bad to the bone. And I think that it, it really does work very, very well for the film. Um, up next is uh, 1981's Halloween 2, the follow-up to the original 78 classic. And this one, of course, stars Jamie Lee Curtis. We see a return to the John Carpenter world of Nancy Kyes, K-Y-E-S, who was also in Assault on Precinct 13. She played Julie. We just heard her theme a little bit ago. And she is here in Halloween 2. So let us check out a little bit of the main theme from Halloween 2. Thank you. 
Yeah, this is a cool version. Um, obviously not the piano that we were used to from the original. This is more of a combination of like the the original and, and an offshoot of that alternate mix that we listened to on the last time we were talking about John Carpenter. Um, a little, a, a lot more synthy, a little faster, um, pushing that um, that bass drum a little bit too, and, and then you know the same overtone chords, but just with a different synthesizer, uh, similar one, but a little bit different. And uh, it definitely has a good push to it. You know, it doesn't, but it, again, to me, it doesn't bring me fear. It doesn't put me on the edge of my seat. It doesn't make me uh, concerned for what's about to happen. It's it's almost like just like a cool song. It it almost feels just as happy as it does sad to me. And I, I don't think that works as much for a horror film, but as a standalone piece, I think it's pretty cool. Again, in John Carpenter's classic style, it's repetitive. Uh, but when you're sitting down and watching it with film, it's like, even if you had the lights off and everything, I don't think that this version brings out the intensity. It's more like a circus version, right, of of the same thing, because those, you know, it's it, the synths are a little bit cheesy sounding and um, it, it, it just doesn't have the same drama as as the original one. I think the original one just brought out so much more. Uh, but it's a cool piece on its own. I, I definitely wouldn't shy away from it. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty cool. So that is from the Halloween 2 movie that came out in 1981. Wow. Our next one up is one of my favorite Kurt Russell films called The Thing. So The Thing came out in 1982. Um, This was one of those types of movies that kind of really solidified a a trope in the horror genre where you have to, you you can have a group of people and they can work together. They can work against each other. You're probably going to find both throughout the movie. They, they trust each other because they have to, and then they don't trust each other. But the, the key to this is that they're isolated. And not only are they isolated from society, they're also isolated to the point where there's not a lot of places they can go to run. Um, you see a lot of this in, in, in horror movies in the woods, um, sometimes out like, you know, they'll be out on an expedition or whatever. And, and the key to this is just that the, the additional feeling of the helplessness of it all is that there's nowhere to go. They can't run to their neighbor's house and call for help. They can't run to a police station or, you know, drive away somewhere quickly and, and, and get away from the danger. They're stuck there. There is nothing for miles of desolate ice and snow and mountains. And, you know, they they have to face this thing. That's the, that's the trick. And so I, I really like that setting of isolation. I think that's a real key to it because it wouldn't I mean, they would have just gotten out of there if that were the case. And they would have called the police or, or the army or whatever to come and dispose of the creature. Um, so that's a really key component, you know. But I, I, I mean, there's definitely something very consistent with John Carpenter's film music, at, at least for a lot of the opening themes and main themes, is that he sets that pulse, whatever that pulse is going to be, 
And then he comes in over the top with some synthesized chords and, you know, maybe a melody or something. But he's he's got a pretty distinct style um, for for this time, at least. And again, you know, we're still talking early 80s. This is 82. So lots of, um, you know, lots of options. But that just seems to be what his wheelhouse is, at least for these songs, that the majority of these songs that we've listened to so far. Uh, our next song is from a movie I know literally nothing about. It is called Dark Star. It came out in 1974. And the only reason I know that is because I looked it up. Uh, I, I know nothing about this film. I don't believe I've ever seen it. Um, I don't even know this piece of music. So let's check it out. This is an interesting one. I mean, granted, it's an older film compared to the other ones that we're talking about, but um, it definitely feels space agey. Um, these synths and, and stuff that we're hearing and the oscillating synth especially really gives it a spacey feel. So I think he nailed that emotion. Um, I'm guessing Dark Star is a, is a sci-fi space film, but um, you you can almost hear a little bit of inflection of what would go on to become Halloween in here as well. And I like that, or I think he just really sticks to a small handful of things. Like he, he just knows what he wants. Here's that box he likes to stay in. So the songs are going to have some similarities to them, whether, you know, like his movies where he keeps working with a lot of the same people, he might do the same musically. Uh, it's a cool beast. So I like it. It's, it's really uh space agey and kind of uh, ethereal a little bit, but again, it just, it just goes nowhere, you know, uh, as far as the, the long term of a standalone listen, but it doesn't definitely would set the tone for a space movie. I think um, just imagining like myself sitting in the theater, watching opening credits, even if they were just block letters, giving you no indication what the film is about at all. I think the music certainly would give you the fact, the, the uh, feel that it's a, a, a cosmos related type movie, um, but pretty cool. And that brings us to our theme from the movie They Live. Of course, the great uh, 88 classic starring Rowdy Roddy Piper from what would have been the WWF at that time before they had to change their name to the WWE. Uh, Piper, man, that guy was kind of crazy, you know, and I like that um, in, in, you know, I've been a fan of the WWE on and off over the years. And, you know, I'll get like, hey, I wonder what what they're doing, because I used to watch it pretty avidly as a kid. And. Uh, certainly around the time that Piper was was hitting his peak um, when he had Piper's Pit, his interview show, and he had the coconut incident with Jimmy Superfly Snuka and, you know, had big rivalry with Hulk Hogan and, and you know, all that during that time when there were not a lot of people to choose from. I mean, it's funny, uh, for a while, the, their heavyweight champion was Bob Backlund and Bob Backlund is like a just a tiny little nugget compared to some of the guys they've got out there now. Um, or, or, you know, even just a couple of years later. 
And so he kind of became an underdog champion because there's no way he would have been able to to keep up with those guys. But uh, Piper, he was just one of those, like he, his character was based on you hating him. So he was a heel and he did everything he could to make you hate him. He was very, very good at it too. Uh, ran his mouth a lot. And uh, I, I guess you have to do that if you're in a testosterone based area, but you wear a kilt, got to do something. Uh, so, uh, in 1988, they live came out, uh, fantastic movie, definitely a cult classic. Let's listen to the main theme. think he was kind of in that big trouble in little China mode, you know, where he's writing some stuff that's happier. Um, I, yeah, I mean, he was kind of rock and roll, I guess, but I, I thought the film could have used some, some much darker tones, but maybe it was more of a parody kind of thing. I don't remember. I've only seen it once and it was on network television. So a lot of it was edited for network television, but it's certainly a cult classic. I mean, that line, I I'm here to kick ass and chew bubble gum has been repeated in memes and uh, by people at, at great length. And um, yeah, I mean, it, the the whole thing was there's aliens that walk among us and you put on these special sunglasses, almost like you would 3D glasses in a movie theater. And you all of a sudden their their uh, true identity is visible for you for you. So you know who's a, a good guy and who's a bad guy, I guess. Um, but it's it, I, it, as much as I remember, I liked it, but I know it's a really popular cult classic type film. Um, but that was the the opening theme or the main theme from it. So, uh, again, kind of an unexpected. I wouldn't necessarily have gone in that direction, but I'm not that familiar with the film. So who knows? Maybe I would have. Our next uh, selection here is called Prince of Darkness. And this film came out in 1987. And I remember I wanted to see it because Alice Cooper was in it. And I'm a huge fan of Alice Cooper, but we've got a lot of returning champions to the to the John Carpenter world. We've got Donald Pleasance from Halloween. We've got Victor Wong and Dennis Dunn from Big Trouble in Little China. It's just like, you know, like I said, there are just certain people he liked working with and he, he worked with them seemingly as much as he could. I forgot Dennis Dunn was in this. I, I was thinking that the only film that he had done was Big Trouble in Little China. But no, I forgot he had he was in this. Um, so let's listen to a little bit of the theme from Prince of Darkness.
Now, I know you're worried. I want you to know that part comes back in again. <laughs> uh, it, it, it does repeat again for quite a while, but he's got some other synths that he brings into, which give it a little bit more variety than some of his other pieces. This is a later work. So, you know, it might, it might've been that he got more comfortable or he had more uh, instruments available to him or more ability to record multi-track. I don't know, but in any case, it's a, it's a cool piece. Um, I like the mood of it. I don't know how well it fits the movie, but as a standalone, I think it's, it's got a good mood. Is it very interesting for a long period of time? No. But that's just the style of his music. Um, but cool piece, for sure. And then our last one here from the uh, Essential John Carpenter CD is from the 99 film starring Kirstie Alley with Michael Perret, Mark Hamill, and a cast of others. This one is called Village of the Damned. And here is the theme. Now, I've never seen Village of the Damned, but I have to say, I really like that theme. Uh, it, it it has a snare in it, which is pretty nice. You don't get a lot of that with uh, with John Carpenter, uh, at least not through this period of his music, but it's it's got a good feel to it. I like the opening. I like the way it builds. It's actually got some nice parts that go on a little bit uh, beyond this sample. So this is one that I would say uh, would be worth checking out if you've got the time and the, and the interest. I think it's a cool piece. I've never seen the film so I don't know how well it fits. In fact, I had no idea that Mark Hamill and Kirstie Alley were in a film together at all. Um, but, you know, I can't see everything. But this this would be one I, I would be interested to check out just because uh, right away the score is intriguing me. I think that's fun. Um, yeah, I, I would check it out. But it's, it's a good piece of music, I have to say. It, it's definitely um, a little more interesting than a lot of his other pieces. It, it just feels like it goes in a direction that it has more of a purpose. Other than that, I think, you know, when I think about a lot of the songs on this collection, I think it's like he wrote a cool part that just turned into a song and he just kept playing it. And there are variations on that part, but it's really mostly just that part. And then there's a couple where, oh, okay, well, he's got two parts like on this one, you know, but uh, overall, I think he's a good composer. I think he he writes music that that for the most part fits his mo movies pretty well. I, I would say, you know, I don't know if he goes to other people and before the films come out and says, hey, take a look at this and let me know what you think, honestly, because I think a couple of those themes from films that I knew kind of missed the the mark a little bit. Uh, but then, you know, that's it's it's easy to say when it's already been scored 
and you don't have the blank film in front of you without that memory in your head to see if you could do something better. I think Halloween is is just such a great score for a horror movie, and it's certainly become very iconic. So again, maybe it's part of that nostalgia. Because like I said, I really wasn't a big fan of the theme from Halloween 2. But both of the themes that we listened to from Halloween 1, you know, the main title theme and then the Haunted House theme, I really liked both of those. I, I thought they were great pieces of art and and definitely suit those films very, very well. So that's it, guys. That is the entire Essential John Carpenter album. And I hope that you guys liked it. If you're so inspired, you know, it is that time of year. Go watch some of his films. I could watch Big Trouble in Little China anytime. I could honestly watch uh, Halloween in the middle of June when it's 118 degrees outside and not feeling anything like fall at all, uh, because it's just such a good movie. And uh, I'm very curious to see the new one. Uh, Maybe by the time this comes out, I'll have already seen it. I don't know. If it's in theaters, I probably won't until it comes out for, for rent um, on, on demand, but, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it to see if this really is the end. They're certainly teasing it up to be, uh, in the trailer, Jamie Lee Curtis is saying, cause now they've defined Michael as a supernatural being and that. I kind of thought, all right, this is kind of getting a little bit too far because he was born a regular child. Where did he become supernatural? Like Jason Voorhees, like Jason was a regular kid. He might have, no, I think he was a little bit disfigured, but there was certainly nothing supernatural about him that you got from the first movie anyway. He was just a boy that drowned. There wasn't anything magical about him until he, you know, rose from the grave and they keep killing him and he keeps coming back. So I kind of started to feel like that with Michael. Like Michael was a, he was still a human, you know, he was just a, a guy that didn't have an identity as a person. That's why they referred to him as the shape because he wasn't like a man, you know, he could take a bullet and still keep going, but there was nothing that was really supernatural about him. And now they're, they've made him out to be a being that's like, um, you know, something beyond our, our normal see in, in the world. So I don't, I don't necessarily know if I'm going to like that for the last movie, but, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, her line was, you know, maybe the only way that Michael can die is if I can die. So they're certainly playing it up to where this is definitely going to be the end. But, you know, I mean, if the franchise is making money and they have ideas beyond it, they're going to keep it going. Why wouldn't they? It's just the the nature of making movies. If it's successful, we're just going to keep doing it until we've long burned out the series. And since they're ignoring most of the films that have come out to do this series, they certainly have that room, whether it's, you know, um, some friend of the family or somebody else, a distant cousin or whatever takes it over. Uh, who knows what they would do, but it's going to be interesting to see. So check that out. Thanks for uh, enjoying another episode with me. I'll be back with another episode before you know it. You guys have a great, safe and wonderful week. It is a wonderful time of year. The the crisp air always makes me happy, especially when you know you live in the desert. So you guys take care, enjoy, take care, be good to yourselves and be good to each other. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>